Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. On today's episode, we'll be interviewing Matt Kaminsky, aka Gnarly Pippins. Matt is a fruit explorer and orchardist who specializes in wild seedling palm fruits. These feral trees that grow on the sides of highways, edges, and other forgotten places have much to offer. They are often more pest and disease resistant than standard varieties and have wildly complex flavor profiles. Tune in today to learn all about Matt's work foraging and propagating these unique trees throughout the rolling hills of Western Massachusetts. Stick with us. Matt Kaminsky, also known as Gnarly Pippins, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Why don't we start off with who you are and what your introduction to tree crops was, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I'm Matt Kaminsky. I am talking to you from Sunderland, Massachusetts, where I live. I've been in this area in the Connecticut Valley for the last, like, let's see, uh, 11 years. I went to Hampshire College, which was kind of where the whole, like, tree crops fascination went, started out because... Yeah, they've got they've got a kind of sprawling campus with a lot of old old apple trees that are strewn about the campus. Yeah, the the many sort of neglected trees on that property are in varying states of living or dying. And so when I was a second year at Hampshire, my sophomore year, me and some other students were very interested in, you know, why why is no one really paying attention to this this is like kind of a big part of the the landscape and the natural environment here they're such a fixture in like the in student life in the fall because in in a year when the trees are productive there's you know you're just like eating thousands of apples so you know there's a focal point for me so sort of dove in started a little student group we called it the hampshire college orchard team we had some help from a upperclassman who was in the Stockbridge School. That was sort of like our first foray into actually working on like maintaining apple trees and learning about physiology of fruit trees. And that was just a bit of a primer into getting, you know, deeper and deeper into everything. You know, the rabbit hole is a grand one. So yeah, I got, got interested in orchard management and then started working with different varieties at a farm locally that kind of specialized in sort of like a diverse heirloom selection of varieties, but mostly for you pick and for like eating. So again, we're still in that in that realm of the cultivated. But then as, as time goes on, I get more interested in cider you know as i came of age and some of the like more eccentric funky flavors and and expressions of apples including like the the really gnarly bitterness and just some more unusual traits that you see in apples sometimes and one of the places that i could get the you know the most excitement looking for those things was rather than sort of more more the traditional cider apples which a lot of people were and still are, but at that time, this was like 2014 or so, we're just getting that that new consciousness about like cider was just, just starting to pick up here. And so like more people are interested in growing like fruit just for cider, but I was at the same time looking toward 
feral apples that were growing like on the 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 tree line or like the edges of fields at this farm I was working at and finding some things which were like whoa this is just hanging out in the corner here these trees are producing like these wacky apples that are making crazy like bitter sharp and bittersweet apples and things that I hadn't tasted some of these flavors before so that was like the beginning of the end for me it was like no turning back from you know (laughs) apples that are hacking it on their own with no basically no management and I was very acutely aware at that point of like how much energy and time and effort and money goes into growing apples this was an organic place so especially with ecological thoughtfulness going into the production of the the fruit at this orchard you know seeing these apples on the tree on the on the tree line half a mile away which had not had any attention at all but doing absolutely excellent on their own fighting the elements and bugs and disease and all that i was totally blown away so there's there was a lot to unpack i'm still unpacking it but from a from a fruit perspective it blew my mind the traits of the fruit were very unique and every wild tree i've found since then basically has been unique in other ways and the fact that they we're defying the odds of what I thought was possible from a perspective of, you know, how trees grow and, and what their biological and physiological needs are from humans in order to, you know, thrive in our in our climate in this part of the world. That was just not true because wild apples are doing the best. They're out there doing the most with nothing to help them along other than the natural elements. So anyway, that's kind of a long intro to how I got into seedling apples, but basically just trying to, trying to stay in a, in a state of wonder about them. So Matt, when you talk about seedling apples, to to me, the, the importance really comes from the pest and disease resistant sort of perspective, but for many folks, they might not recognize how intensive your standard commercial apple crop is and the sort of pest and disease pressure that is put upon it. Could we sort of talk about that a little bit before we even dive into the topic? Like, you know, what a standard commercial apple orchard looks like? Yeah, totally. Fundamentally, (laughs) I think that people probably don't even understand, like, what the real difference is when you strip things down to brass tacks between, like, conventional growing and organic growing, especially in tree fruit commercially. But yeah, there's like a lot of misconceptions about what goes into growing any fruit crop. And I feel like it's especially intense with orchard fruit when when people don't seem to have like a real sense of of what's entailed commercially in the like current, the current accepted industrial means of, of growing stuff. But it's awfully chemically intensive and reliant on a whole array of antagonistic chemicals. Apples are in the rose family. Just about everything in the rose family is like the most desired thing by anything that (laughs) like breathes or photosynthesizes. It's just like it's a universal food crop for a lot of for like other mammals and uh, insects. So, you know, there's just so many different insects that can lay their eggs inside of undeveloped apples and then they destroy the fruit. There are so many different fungal and bacterial diseases that that exist. And again, you know, these are all things that exist more or less ubiquitous in our environment. But the the method that is currently accepted is like try and alter or remove 
those elements from the ecosystem. So for example, like apple maggot fly, a very common pest of fruit, you know, it can, it can deform and damage and destroy fruit to the point where it, it falls off the tree before it ripens. The, the way to do that, you know, you kill the bug. You don't try and insert something into that system, into the ecology that can utilize that and, in, in, you know, step in utilizing the concept of like the food chain or, or any other agroecological moves there. It's just like a, a chemical approach to remove the threat. And this goes for every single thing that can ding up your apple trees. So some of the conventional products cause terrible effects on the environment, including like things that will cause irreparable damage to like pollinators and domestic honeybees is like a very big problem. You know, people spraying neonicotinoid pesticides. That's a big one. Also, the use of herbicides is like crazy in orchards. Do you think that like, oh yeah, probably no big deal for apple trees to like coexist with grass, but it's common for there to be like a three to four foot wide herbicide strip right at the base of trees. Um, and a lot of the products that are used for that are like really horrible and remain in the soil and leach into the watersheds. So again, there's a lot of really horrible chemicals that are used in growing apples conventionally and, and organically for every like awful, toxic, sometimes carcinogenic like chemical that's used in conventional systems, there is like an organic counterpart to them. But that word organic has become like also really devalued. And there's just like some pretty intense stuff that is that is considered organic in terms of understanding like different different ways that they interact with our food and also just with like local ecologies it's pretty it's pretty intense the whole thing is it's extremely chemically reliant for every function from like making sure that bacteria and mold and and fungus doesn't hurt the trees and cause crop loss to insects to things that have more to do with the actual physiological function of the tree, like like thinning and the managing the crop load is all done with chemical spray. And there's nothing really natural about blasting aerosols on a tree. <laughs> like there's just, that doesn't happen anywhere in the natural world. It's just kind of a like, whoa, this is intense. So that's how fruit is grown. I mean, I think that's a great explanation of the why in terms of an argument for seedling apples. So why don't we dive into it in terms of like the apple that's growing on the side of the road or on the side of the highway, why is that a better option than your standard, you know, gala or cultivated apple that is requiring a lot more inputs in a cultivated system? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think a good place to start answering that is probably to explain to folks like what the significance and possibly even what the definition of a seedling apple is. I don't I don't know if you think that your listenership would would have like inherently have like a good sense of what a seedling apple is in contrast to whatever the opposite of a seedling apple is, a grafted apple or cultivated apple. What do you think about that? Yeah, our our listener base would definitely benefit from a seedling apple explanation and now is a great time to do it. It's pretty fundamental to understanding what's going on with the apples that you eat on a daily basis to just make sense of the fact that in order to obtain the same apple variety spread across multiple trees or, or in many cases like 
far and wide. You, you have to rely on clonal propagation in order to do so because apple seeds are all heterozygous, meaning that if you germinate an apple seed and you grow a tree, of course, that seed was the product of a seed parent and a pollen parent from two distinct trees, hence why apple trees need cross-pollination to make fruit. The tree that grows from that seed is going to make fruit that doesn't resemble either of its parents at all. They have really vast differences between parents and offspring. Apple trees have way more genes, individual genes, in their genome than humans do. So the possible combinations and possible like genetic re-scramblings that occur with each seed that gets produced is really like a mind-boggling, a mind-boggling number of possibilities there. So when you get trees whose seeds don't produce varieties that are faithful to the parents, you end up with populations of seedlings that are all unique from one another. So each each seedling tree is a one-of-a-kind apple that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, basically. So when you understand that, you know, you have to put place a little bit of value on the fact that when you get that, that Cortland apple or that Baldwin apple at a store or an orchard, there's this kind of unbelievable process that has to occur in order to make that happen. You know, they have to be grafted. They have to be cloned in order to reproduce that desired variety of fruit. Yeah, and going off of that, any apple core or apple seed that gets, you know, cast into the into the untended spaces of our landscape, for example, like the median of a road or, or tossed out like a, a train window, you know, off the side of a railroad, like places that no one really thinks about underneath like a big stone in a stone wall or something or at the edge of a field where the forest meets the, the vegetation. These are areas that are pretty typical for these feral apple trees to germinate and take root and, and, and grow. So wild apple trees, we use the phrase wild apple pretty freely. It's almost synonymous with seedling apples or feral apples. It basically all means the same thing. Just the apple that grew from seed without human intervention. These are in all environments, built or natural environments, urban or rural, all through the temperate world. And knowing now that, you know, these apples are unique and one of a kind and capable of producing really vastly different and unique things, it makes the idea of exploring for seedling apples in a particular location super, I don't know, super exciting and kind of a unique experience in terms of, you know, fruit, fruit exploring in general. Apples are just, they're really easy to find. They're all edible and they're each different from one another. So there's, yeah, there's, there's kind of endless fun there. Yeah. So why don't we just sort of talk about some of the seedling apples that you first discovered? I mean, for myself, my first introduction to the, the concept of a wild apple or the seedling apple was I-95 which is the Jack Cortez introduction. And that was at 
Aaron Parker's Food Forest in Maine. And, you know, the story behind that apple is pretty interesting in that it was found on the side of the highway and it was, you know, like a rootstock and it, it produces apples that are unaffected by pest and disease and is se- seemingly seems to be a, a offspring of a red delicious. And so the, the idea of a wild apple or a seedling apple is really really, really interesting to me, but I, your knowledge in this in this area is just so much more in depth. I'm sure there's a lot, there's probably not just one, there's probably many different varieties that you found on the side of highways. So if we could talk about that, I mean, I think that would be a great place to start. Yeah, totally. Yeah, shout out Jack Cortez, love the guy. He's one of the funniest people of all time and I love talking to him and he is one of the most dedicated fruit explorers, yeah. I, I remember seeing I-95 in the uh, Fedco catalog a long time ago. And I mean, I think he found that in like 1987 or something. So this was this was way before the current resurgence of, of wild apples in popular local plant culture, I guess you could say. But um, yeah, they're, you know, these wild apple trees do emerge all over edge type ecosystems. So you know, there's a lot of those in our landscape. I mean, our landscape is like kind of full of edges because humans love borders and stuff like that. So wherever there's a field, you know, there's a, there's an edge along all four sides of that field and edge ecosystems are unique in that they have often a, you know, mixed characteristic of at least part to, to full sun, often their mixture of like forest type soil ecology and open field soil ecology to put it, you know, broadly and apple trees really tend to thrive in these, in these little edges of places and along the in-betweens in our, in our landscape. So once they take root, it's sort of up to mother nature and the process of natural selection to weed out specimens that are not totally fit to survive in these circumstances that they've found themselves in. And as such, you really get strong, very well-fit apple trees that don't tend to need any care whatsoever in order to thrive and do what they do best. And so, yeah, as an example, in, in the I-95 apple, which is which was the name given to the, the tree, and I'll get into that too in a, in a minute, but um, the whole naming process is a, kind of a, a fun trip there. But yeah, the I-95 apple is a great example of a tree that just emerged in a place when where you wouldn't expect it to to come up this may have been i think that that one might have been a, a rootstock apple right the understock of this of this grafted tree right because a graft comprises two parts the the roots and the the below ground portion and then the the above ground portion which controls the variety of fruit the scion oftentimes these like ornamental crab apples that are planted by you know, the DPW or other municipal organizations or or large landscaping companies, something like that. These are often grafted onto seedling apples, apples that were intentionally planted from seed to be used as rootstock. It's a very cheap way to, to grow a root system that's compatible with apples and so this is oftentimes what's done for like municipal street trees and especially from a certain era but if those trees aren't carefully maintained and pruned year after year and sometimes the roots can express their own trunks and their own branches and, and in some cases they overtake the 
main part of the tree. They can outcompete the the scion portion, the above ground piece that controls the fruit. And the result is that you kind of get this seedling apple that's just coming out of nowhere. It's kind of a funny thing to see, especially if it's like a grafted or, you know, the, if the grafted portion is like a, a neglected ornamental crab apple that's planted for like beautification of a highway or something like that, as was the case with this I-95 tree. But yeah, roadways are probably some of the best places to find apple trees because so many apple cores, you know, get discarded along the highway. In addition to that, deer and bears to some degree, but I mean, really a lot of deers and raccoons and, and smaller mammals will spread seed by finding apple cores, whether they're from other feral trees or from, you know, some human source of apples and spread them wherever they're grazing and therefore leaving their droppings behind. But, you know, deer are grazing animals and they are one of the main vectors for wild apples. And they end up grazing a lot along the same places where apple trees like to grow, the edge, because there's a good mixture of, you know, woody browse and grass for, for the deer to eat. So they end up spreading the seed too um, in all sorts of places. So whether, whether you have, you know, trees coming up from animal droppings or from, an expression of a rootstock that was planted from seed in a nursery somewhere in like more of a cultivated setting. These are all sort of uh, manifestations of, of seedling apples. And they're all kind of infinitely interesting and useful too. Been foraging for wild apples for a really long time now. And I think I'd, I'd probably say that some of my favorite ones did come from, you know, roadside, but it's hard to narrow, hard to narrow down to any like sort of favorites. There are hundreds that I've found and, and found some use in, but I'd say probably about 30, which I would consider like in the greatest hits for my personal sake. And that's growing all the time because of the the cool work that people like anyone who's interested in wild apples. But, you know, there are a lot of important folks in, in New England specifically doing that and on the West Coast and in the Great Lakes. I mean, really all over the temperate part of North America, there's like some incredible wild apples out there that people are finding and, and spreading it's because they're just such a ubiquitous resource if you know where to look. And Matt, when you find a seedling tree, whether it's um, the side of the road or just in a random spot growing out of a rock wall uh, that's sort of unknown to the world and you want to propagate that tree, is your first thought to, to graft it? Uh, are there other conditions that you you think, okay, I want to save some seed from this? Or is it be, like you were talking about before, because they're so heterozygous, it's just unlikely that any seeds are going, going to resemble the parent? Or in some cases, do you think, okay, maybe I should collect seed from this because maybe I'll get lucky and some of the seeds will resemble the parent and or maybe be even better? Yeah, right. I, I don't tend to use seeds of the wild apples that I'm finding for cultivation. My first thought when I find a wild apple is actually not to immediately to propagate it. It's to enjoy the fruit now and then observe it for, you know, at least a couple seasons because, you know, if we're being honest, wild apples, yeah, they're they're abundant. They're out there and they're interesting, but there are so many of them. I mean, Really, there the streets in certain areas are are tech, like really just lined with them. There are so many thousands of wild apples out there, all of which again are different. 
but not all of them are fantastic. You know, there are many of them which, yeah, they can hack it. They can grow really well without the use of any chemicals or any human intervention, and they can produce crops of fruit that are really abundant. And sometimes they can do so every single year without taking a break. But do they taste good? You know, are they useful? Do they ripen during a time of the year when it's useful to us? You know, there's there's so many traits that you have to measure and, and consider the qualities of that doesn't mean that every single one is good. And one of those things for my purposes, I really think it's important that trees have a regular habit of bearing fruit. Apple trees are a biennial species by nature. I think the, the, the most common inclination for them in terms of a habit of bearing is actually to stagger between a very heavy crop year and then a very light crop year and alternating year in and year out, heavy crop, light crop, heavy crop, light crop, like that. You know, we call that biennialism. And it's not a great trait for people who like to have a consistent harvest, obviously. No matter how much you try, there are certain varieties that are just naturally prone to that cycle of bearing. And there are some which are quite the opposite, which have an annual bearing habit. So I, I think it's good to try and like temper the excitement of finding a wild apple that you're excited about because like the flavor is great or it looks so beautiful or like, oh my God, this is going to make the best cider ever or something like that. And just think about like, okay, well, first of all, you know, does the tree look healthy? Is it going to produce fruit annually does the fruit taste good now but is it going to store well how, you know how does it hold up in storage will the cider convey the brilliant flavors that i'm tasting right now or will that kind of fade once you ferment it you know there are so many things to consider that i usually like to mark where a tree is or just remember where it is and then actually just continue observing as much as you can for you know a couple of years and trying to get as much info and see is this really worth it because when push comes to shove you only have so much time in the day and so much space to propagate all these different exciting trees you want to like you know as 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 people interested in this we want to try and push the quality of the fruit that we're kind of growing for the collective use and benefit of of people and of society and for other growers, we want to, we want to push that in like a positive direction as much as we can. And so there is a lot of room for seedling apples to move into like a space of cultivation. Like you were saying, like grafting or, or propagating it via, you know, using some of the seeds, like there's a lot of space to do that and a lot of interest in doing that. I think my approach to it is to try and be really selective because of just how huge the the gene pool is and how huge our options are so yeah that's my first step is to just like try and observe it but once once we get through like two or maybe even at most like three seasons from the time you first discover a tree and you think okay cool like this passes my test it looks like it's disease resistant looks like pests haven't gotten the best of it one other thing I didn't mention before, but I think it's really important, is to try and determine how similar the environment where you found the tree is to a cultivated environment, how, how similar that is. And one of the big things there is sunlight. Like if the amount 
of like UV exposure that a tree is getting during the course of a day is really low. Like if you find an apple tree growing in a place that has a lot of like closed forest canopy covering much higher than the apple tree can reach and you're getting really filtered sunlight or it's getting really like partial daylight and a lot of shade, that's going to change the characteristics of the fruit that you're tasting from that tree like really strongly. And so one thing that we run into a lot with folks who are like, oh, I found this incredible apple, like it was growing in the woods and it was like, it was, it made like five tiny little apples that were so intensely flavored. I was like, okay, well, odds are what you were tasting and what you were enjoying there was the fact that the, that tree was growing in a particular environment that made those fruit taste really intense. But if you were to go through the trouble of taking cuttings from the apple tree, grafting it and growing that in a different environment, the environment itself has a huge bearing on that. So whatever, like five years goes by and you get an apple from this twig that you grafted, you know, it looks like a red delicious from the grocery store. Like it's a big juicy apple that doesn't taste anything like what you tasted in the woods five years ago. And that's because the environment plays such a big role. So I I think it's actually great to forage from the roadside because sure, there's like a lot of road salt and oftentimes like soil near the roads is, is rather compacted and of a poor quality if you're comparing it to like agricultural soils. And so again, there, there, are, there are bound to be some differences, but you, I think that the sunlight thing is one of the more important <laughs> differences that can, that can come up between like a wild apple tree's environment and, you know, generally the types of places where we grow apple trees, whether it's like in a home garden or in like, a, you know, in a farm setting, I like to try and moderate expectations about <laughs> what you're going to end up with when you attempt to propagate a wild apple tree. And again, once you cross that threshold of cultivation, that's kind of like a phrase that I use often to describe that movement of like, okay, cool. I found this wild seedling apple tree and I love it so much. I want to like replicate it. I want to harness that, you know, trying to, trying to cross that threshold by grafting it in a different environment is, I mean, some people think it's a fool's errand. I think John Chapman, you know, Johnny Appleseed, like he's like someone who all of us know from the mythology that we have stored up about him, but his like religious beliefs dictated that, that grafting was a sin. And so Johnny Appleseed like grew seedling apples because that's what he believed was like a pure <laughs> and uh wow, grafting was a sin. Haven't yeah, that grafting one was a sin. Yeah, it was against God's will. Wow. Well, but thanks yeah. for sharing all of that uh that experience with us. I, I think you probably saved a lot of people a lot of time, maybe uh three generations <laughs> because well, maybe. Uh, you get excited. I, mean, again, I am grafting wild apples all the time and I have found some pretty awesome results from doing so. It's just, yeah, you've had to, you have to get a few like, oh, wow, this is, this is kind of disappointing. You have to get that experience out of the way a few times before you can find what you're looking for. But I, again, there, there are so many wild apples out there that depending on what your goals are, you know, if you're for any of like listeners of the podcast, it's like, who knows like what people are actually interested in doing. It's not everyone's goal to become like you know, a big, big shot orchard who's growing like unique apples from, from wild seedlings. It's like some people just want to have enough apples to, 
you know, use through the winter and make a bunch of cider, or, you know, can a bunch of applesauce. It's like, well, if there's like a great seedling tree around you, it's like, sure, it might be nice to graft like one or two of them. But, you know, at the same time, if you can do what you can to protect and encourage growth on the tree, the, the original seedling tree, the mother trees, if you can protect the mother tree and, and do what you can to encourage it to, to remain healthy, then it's like, you know, there, there are so many awesome wild apples out there that you can just go from one to another if you know where they are and if you're willing to, to do the effort of actually harvesting from wild apple trees. Not always the easiest thing, but that's another route. You know, grafting is like a whole, it's a whole journey. It's a skill that it's not learned instantly. It's not rocket science, but it's also like a, it's a whole journey uh, that you have to go on in terms of like rearing young plants is, is a vibe for sure. So uh, anyone out there who just wants to go foraging, you know, the, the grafting part of it and the, the growing part of it is like really, it's a, it's a whole hemisphere of engaging with apple trees that like, if you're interested in it, go for it. But you can also have kind of a beautiful experience going for wild apples without without having to take all that on. That's just what, for me, that's what I've engaged with is like trying to bring wild apples that I'm finding to a cultivated space where the culture of apples is growing in a certain direction. So bringing that to growers and people all over the place. So Matt, earlier in the podcast, you talked about the the concept of naming. I'm sure that some of our listeners on the discussion of seedling or quote unquote wild apples will want to know some, you know, selected or named varieties that they can grow in their backyard forest garden or orchard or whatever that are sort of the low maintenance, you know, non-spray varieties. We talked about I-95, but are there some other named varieties that are accessible and out there of seedling apples that people could look out for? Yeah, there are some which have been available for longer time than others through some of the more, um, I would say, you know, you know, popular mainstream nurseries like Fedco, Cummins Nursery. You know, these are some names of places where you can buy apple trees, either mail order or, you know, go go in person. I, I think there is a little bit of like a, a new movement towards grafting on a commercial level, um, like nurseries are interested in grafting wild apple trees and making those available to people because of this like resurgence in popularity. So one exciting piece of news from my little world is that one of my favorite, you know, scratch that probably my favorite all time favorite, like wild seedling apple that I've found is called old fertile. And that was named by a friend of mine who was out foraging with me the day that we found it. That one has just been made available through Fedco, Fedco Trees. And I think from here on, they'll be offering it, which is like really exciting for me. It's one, again, it's probably my favorite wild apple that I've found. And it has shown to be like one of the easiest growing varieties in terms of like yeah, the, the, the various levels of care that it that it doesn't require. It's been really, really pest and disease resistant. And it also tends to have this like incredibly nice natural growth habit. It trains itself to a central leader, perfect angle. It's kind of unbelievable. At least that has been the experience of, of my, my, my own 
trials with it, as well as a bunch of growers in my community, small and large, who have who have started growing that one. So that's one which you can get like right away. But um, you know, one one of my frustrations from a few years ago was that yeah, I'm finding all these really great wild apples. Like, wouldn't it be so cool if I could like share that with people and you know get that out there? I started offering the scion wood you know the the wood that you would use to graft your own trees from this these varieties that started like five or six years ago when i was making this available to other people and i think probably hundreds if not thousands of replica trees from these wild varieties have been grafted all over the states but that's really confining it to people who have the skill of grafting or who are willing to take that skill on of, of learning to graft and, and rear baby trees until they're, you know, big enough to plant in a final location and then, you know, get them through the juvenile fruit tree phase. Like it's, you know, it's a labor of love to do that. And so I think a lot of folks were like not able to access that. So I started like growing these wild varieties as nursery stock that, I would grow for two years and then be able to sell to folks from not just some of the select seedlings, like the old fertile, which is through Fedco now available through Fedco, which is again, like one of the, one of the greatest hits, but even grafting some of the ones which are still sort of in that trial observation phase, which, you know, are just as exciting, but just have, you know, are are more in the experimental phase. Um, in terms of observing how they do in a cultivated setting. So I'm really happy that that's continuing to get off the ground. Next year, I'm going to be more able to ship them. This this past year, the two-year-old trees, I was just like trying to, I'm trying to start small with this because again, it's like kind of a, a crazy thing. But yeah, I was able to offer a bunch of two-year-old trees to like people within within driving distance who can pick them up locally but next year i think i'll be able to ship them anywhere which is awesome so that's a way that people can like engage with these off the walls kind of apple apple varieties and pears too honestly doing a lot of work with wild pears there's so many similarities between them but um different fruit different purpose pears are invited to the party as well and so I'm using the gnarly pippins platform to get that stuff out in the world. So that's another way that people can like find a, you know, a, an inroad to the, to the wild apple scene. But one of the most exciting things in terms of just like, what are, what are some other wild apples that are out there that are notable each fall since 2019, I've been offering free admission to this uh, exhibition of wild apples that uh, I've been organizing as part of Franklin County Cider Days. It's a really awesome event where basically my job is to solicit submissions from folks like myself who are exploring for wild seedling apples or who, who just have, have some in their, in their orbit and want to introduce them to a, a wider community. So through the fall, late summer, honestly, too, and early fall, all the way until like the first week of November, people will harvest their wild apples and and mail a small selection of them to me through the post. And that fruit will get saved and then presented at this event, which happens on the first Friday 
in November every year at the Ashfield Community Hall in Ashfield, Massachusetts. This year, I believe it's like the 3rd of November, 2023. Usually in the last three years, we've had well over a hundred different varieties of, of wild seedling apples and pears on display. And they're all sliced up and you can taste every single one of them. Each plate, you know, has, has a name placard and a little like tasting notes sheet where we encourage all the attendees to like pick up a pen and like write down some tasting notes for each apple. And at the end, once you've made the rounds through the room and tasted all the apples you want to, you can, you can cast your vote for the best, you know, in four different categories. And and last year we had like best tasting, best quality eating, best quality cider, whatever that means. Again, all these like voting superlatives are like totally subjective to each and every person's personal taste and context and all that. And then the other two categories are best pair. Oh, and there was, there was five total categories. Yeah. Best pair, best crab apple. And the crab apple is distinguished by its size. So an apple under two inches is a crab apple. So best crab apple, and then finally best in show. So with all those categories, you can vote, you know, one in each category and it's just a great, it's a great time and a great opportunity for folks to like kind of taste the, the state of the art cutting edge, like of the wild apples. And so the, the best and most memorable selection of the, however many get introduced in a given season, in a given year at the exhibition, usually we have like over 120 varieties entered usually around half of that or a little more than half, like 60 or 70 that meet the criteria for like, a real introduction, AKA an apple variety that someone found and and submitted as a name for it and efforts of propagating it have taken place or are underway so that the fruit can be, you know, replicated, not just the one mother seedling tree, but other trees and other places of this variety exist. That kind of substantiates it as, as a, proper variety instead of just a sort of a one-off those will be entered into a book a photographic book that contains like painfully detailed descriptions of each apple um, and really stunning photos which are taken by a dear friend and brilliant brilliant person and artist William Mullen who's a photographer who on Instagram goes by poem underscore William formerly known as Poem Queen. Some of you guys listening may be familiar with like the stunning full color, like portraits of apples that he takes and other fruits and things. But his collaboration on this book project has been amazing because the the visual part of apples is like so cool too in how people cement the idea and the identity of each one in their minds. So I'm kind of, when you asked me that, that question, like what are some other ones? I was sort of thinking about the superlatives from the second pomological exhibition we did, which took place in 2021. And so some of the gold medalists in the different categories from that year were totally awesome. And because I'm a cider cider geek, I love I love the really crazy bitter apples 
as well as the ones that taste really lovely for eating purposes. But there was one that was very, very memorable um, from that year called the Narnar of New Philadelphia, which was submitted by a gentleman named Teddy Weber from Tin Hat Cider. Shout out to Teddy. Yeah, and this was like by a landslide voted the best quality cider apple from that year. And it was, yeah, it was a really insane apple. It had a very strange look to it. It looked kind of like we have the, a certain shape in apples that appears every once in a while that's known as like a wasted, W-A-I-S-T-E-D, like a waistline or belted is another word for that, where it's like a round apple, like you can picture, but towards the bottom of the apple, there's like a, a band, like a con a concave band that runs around the fruit, which kind of makes it look like it's sucked in a little bit. So it had a unique look to it, and it just had like a, a crazy flavor. It was like tasted a lot like actually pr the persimmon skin, like really astringent persimmon skin flavor with like white clover flowers and and really like leathery aroma, like like spicy tanned like smoky leather it was pretty insane and people loved it so that was a really memorable one i mean i don't know there's just so many in this book there's like 60 69 different submissions that were profiled and and there were among them there were some some really mind-blowing ones like a, a red fleshed apple submitted by another dear friend named sam bonnie shout out sam if you're listening to this uh much love and uh great submissions every year from sam but this this one propagating a lot in the nursery called Darth Maul, which is like a, a crazy red fleshed apple. It has like really intense, wildly, wildly vivid red flesh and a really great flavor too, which is actually not super common in, in the red fleshed apples. They're often like really acidic and really sharp and hard, hard to swallow. But this one was quite a bit more gentle than, than a lot of the ones I've tasted. So anyway, that was a, a super exciting find and uh, was like, I think it was a high contender for the best in show. So anyway, yeah, those are two, but I mean, really like they're all incredible in their own right. Every single apple, like just blows my mind into a thousand pieces. Wow. Well, you, you have me looking forward to the fall now. Yeah. Well, hey, you guys got to not... save the date. I better see you both there. <laughs> I've already tried to convince Ben to come to Franklin County Cider Days. Yeah, that sounds yeah. wonderful. So this will just seal the deal. So Matt, it, where can people find out about you and your work and the pomological exhibition and the work that you're involved in in preservation orchard and regenerative agroforestry in Western Massachusetts? If anyone wants to stay posted online, um, you can find info about my wild apple adventures and the nursery where you can source trees and scionwood at gnarlypippins.com or gnarlypippins on instagram and if you're someone who enjoys silvopasture and alternative ag systems and regenerative ag if you're into that kind of stuff you should check out meadow fed lamb that's the lamb farm that me and my partner Rachel Haas run together as part of the Preservation Orchard Farm Cooperative in Hadley, Mass. If you're not local, then check out meadowfedlamb.com and stay posted with us on Instagram at meadowfedlamb. And if you are local, 
in either the Connecticut Valley or even if you're from a little further west in New York State, the Hudson Valley, you can come visit us at one of our local appearances at a farmer's market or at one of our pop-ups where we can where we grill lamb for people to eat and enjoy along a glass of cider, something like that. Um, so check out our website, meadowfedlamb.com and check out the where to find us page and you'll find more about that stuff too, as well as the unique farm system that we're exploring and creating every day. So thanks for, thanks for having me guys and hope that people who listen to this got something good out of it. I'm sure that they did. And Matt, I've been purchasing the ciders from Cars Cider House, assuming that you had a hand in, in these, these wild fermented ciders. Is that not the case? Oh, it totally is. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, right now, the wild apple blend has been bottled and is available at Cars Cider House, which is located in Hadley. You can come by the farm stand, which is open daily for sales of ciders in in bottle, as well as other things that we grow, like our lamb and eggs and veggies grown on the farm. But on the weekends, come by and you can enjoy yourself at the cider garden where you can get these ciders by the glass but yeah i've been i've been working with cars cider house they're sort of the the main piece in the preservation orchard co-op it's based at the cider orchard so um yeah both in in growing practices in the orchard i've got i've had a hand in that as well as um helping with sourcing wild apples for the cider operation for years. And uh, yeah, a lot of my work is in the field. The seller work uh, falls to mastermind Jonathan Carr, dear friend and mentor. But the cider is phenomenal. You can't go wrong with any of them, but my personal favorite, which of course I'm biased, is the wild apple blend. So definitely try and come by before that one sells out. It's usually the first one to sell out every year. So yeah, definitely one not to miss. Matt, this has been great. Thanks for sharing all this with us. It makes me want to go back to New England and, and eat apples out here in California. It seems like we've got the Gravensteins. There's a, there's a Gravenstein oh, yeah. festival, but I don't know very much about that. Maybe I'll have to have to dive oh, you in. Go. Oh, Gravensteins are not to be missed, not to be underestimated. Okay. We have a, we have a few a Gravensteins in Hadley, but you know, they're, they're a little different from the California Gravensteins, which are like a totally unique thing. You gotta, you gotta go. Maybe all three of us and any potential listeners will be all coming together at Franklin County Saturdays. And Matt, will you be giving a presentation or, or like in addition to the pomological exhibition in 2024? Well, 2023 and 2024, basically every year I end up doing some, some kind of uh, constellation of, of programming. And oftentimes that ends up being like some, some more talks and educational type stuff along the lines of wild apples. A lot of those events have yet to be announced, so just stay tuned and, and mark down Friday, November 3rd in your calendars as the day that you've got to be in Ashfield, Massachusetts. Details to come on other exciting things not to be missed throughout that weekend in November. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us and to our listeners for sticking around this long. My pleasure. We hope to see you all at the first weekend in November. Western Mass is where it's at. That's right. Come to 413. We'll see you then.